and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. There are no shadows in the Underdark. There is no room for imagination in the Underdark. It is a place for alertness, but not for aliveness. A place with no room for hopes and dreams. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today, with episode 99, we're finally getting to the Underdark. Now, this is a place that I am both excited and terrified to visit. The Underdark is very well written about, so the Underdark lore is pretty much everywhere within D&D lore, and we could not do a Modron march through the plains without covering the Underdark. And while it is part of the material plane, it is definitely its own layer with layers. Absolutely, yes. And the Underdark is primarily a Forgotten Realms creation. There are elements that make their way into Eberron and make their way into Greyhawk, but the Underdark as a location, as a region, falls within the planet of Toril, which is where Faerun is, and the Forgotten Realms setting takes place. So the Underdark runs under all of the land that comprises the continent of Faerun. It also runs under the ocean to the continent on the other side of Toril that nobody really talks about anymore called Mazteca, which was obviously an attempt at an indigenous Central South American Aztec associated culture. I haven't read into it. I would be interested to see how it compares in cultural appropriation terms to something like Oriental Adventures, just to see how cringy <laughs> it yeah. was. And I've said for a long time, I'd love to see like the Mesoamerican Pantheon. There is a lot of awesome stuff in the Pantheon, or even some Mesoamerican lore kind of filtered or done in. But again, it should be done appropriately. And as we talk about the Underdark, there was a lot with the Underdark that was done very poorly, we will say. And it was unfortunately a product of the time in which it was created. D&D and Salvatore and the creators and authors of various aspects and things with the Underdark, I think have gone a long way to try to rectify that. And I tip my hat to them for that. But again, the Underdark does have a checkered past. Yeah. It, historically, the Underdark has been a location for evil aligned humanoids either descendants of persecuted races or banished races. A lot of them are engaged in slavery. A lot of them are very xenophobic. A lot of them are very aggressive towards outsiders. A lot of them are very primitive. There are a lot of tropes that come into play here that present it in a light that is a bit cringy. would not work in today's current climate, no. uh, and, current and, cultural climate. And while they're going for, I mean, a big inspiration for this, and you will see it in stories and sci-fi and fantasy throughout everything, not just D&D, takes a large part of Orwell's time machine where he goes so far in the future and you have the Morlocks who lived underground. And I forget what the surface dwelling people were and the surface dwelling people were all fair and light and advanced. And the Morlocks who basically didn't have access to the wealth and resources of the surface humans were gritty and bestial and overbuilt with size. And so a lot of that carries over. Another real big issue with the Underdark is most of your subterranean races are going to be of darker skin 
skin or darker complexion, which again gets really squicky really fast, which is really ironic because if you've ever been to caves or anything like that, you'll notice that if you're away from the sunlight, creatures naturally become extremely light skin. So, I mean, they didn't even take a good scientific approach to that. So it became, here's the scary things. We need to stick them somewhere. We're going to stick them here. And because they're different, we're going to do this to them too. And it was just like, no, you can't do that. I mean, you can't do that. You shouldn't have done that then, but it was passable as okay. It was not then. It is not now. And so, again, there have been steps to slowly retcon and rectify this, which, again, a tip of the hat for the creators to try to keep the aspects of Underdark, but go back and fix some of those terrible, terrible social missteps. Yeah, I have said for a while that a lot of how the things that are in the older edition books have been presented, it almost feels like surface dweller propaganda. It really does. It, it Because it was all written from the perspective that the players are going to be playing these dwarves and elves and humans from the surface that are in their big civilized nations. And, you know, they have architecture and they have art and they have science and they have magical advancement and all of this. So they had to put in some sort of juxtaposition. They had to create that dichotomy and they got lazy. They just sort of said, okay, we're going to take everything that is other and we're going to put it down here. And so it ended up playing into the sort of colonizer tropes, the European supremacy tropes that were very prominent in fantasy literature especially, but just in general in the time period whenever this lore was being established in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, and something that it took a long time to get enough people with differing viewpoints in to say, this is not okay, we need to change this, we need to create cultures that are not monolithic, that are not inherently evil Because you don't have cultures where everyone in that culture is inherently evil. Right. And coming through, I think this is a good first step. If if you are going to try to run an Underdark campaign, though, this would definitely be a heavier campaign. But I would love to see where you are going to go and deal with all the baddies in the Underdark. And, you know, you, you hear all this lore. You hear how everything is savage and dark and bleak. But when you get there, you notice that it is very much not the case. And so there is art. There is is beauty there is civilization and society and so maybe you have to look at where your characters or players have come from and what skin in the game for lack of a better term i have right now there is to push these old stories or old reasons to make people fear the underdark or to fear the others and again this would be more of a heady game but i think would make for a really good and interesting story see the game that i've wanted to run for a long time I want to run an Underdark game where you're playing as the Underdark races and then you just flip the tropes so that it's actually the surface dwelling races that are viewed as categorically evil. The surface dwelling races that are expansionist, they are imperialist, they are colonizers, essentially, especially the dwarves. They just keep digging further down in and they keep encroaching. And I want to create a game where you are playing as the denizens of the Underdark uniting to push back. I think especially if you ran like a Dwargar campaign, you could do this quite easily. And we will touch up on the reasons for that later. Oh, I would love to have even a game with multiple races because then you can add into it 
an intrigue sort of aspect, a diplomacy sort of aspect, because now you have to work to unite the races of the Underdark against a common foe. I like it. You have to clear the slate. You have to get over all of your past animosities because there are a lot of them. Yes, there are. And it may involve certain races joining up and having to fight off other underdark races to give these societies the breathing room that they need in order to actually have the capacity to form a united front to engage the enemy. I could totally see that. And in this case, I mean, not to avoid tropes, but a historical meter to this would be as the, you know, the Americas were coming across the North Continent or the French or the English, you started having a lot of these smaller, more fractious tribes that had cities. I mean, archaeologically, we have found they had large cities, they had trade routes, they had all this stuff. And they did at one point start to band together. It's just as disease swept across because new pathogens were brought over, a lot of the population was just flatly wiped out. You know, some reports say nine and 10 died from sickness before they even met anyone from the European continents. It just literally wiped out. They call it the great dying. But a lot of these tribes and nations did try to form these republics and confederations to try to maintain their territories and lands. And so you could really do something kind of along those lines as well. Again, do so respectfully. But again, as a historical mirror, this does exist. Yes. Although you would, in this scenario, be playing the equivalent of the natives fighting against the white settlers exactly and so the hope is that by the end of the campaign the natives would win exactly that sounds a bit trite coming from a white man (laughs) i will admit that but that is what at the end of this campaign with you being these characters of these underdark races that is the ultimate goal that you would be searching for is underdark autonomy essentially yeah all right, now that we've gotten deep our, already. <laughs> now that we've gotten our philosophical stances <laughs> out of the way for the night, the Underdark as a setting has a lot of locations already ascribed to it. It has full regions that encompass the territory of multiple kingdoms. There are dozens of settlements. There are something like 35 or 40 named cities within the Underdark in Faerun. We're not going to get into all that. Absolutely not. I mean, we could probably spend as much time going over the cities and towns of just, say, the Sword Coast right now as we have going over the plains. We could spend that much time again and more easily going over the amount of areas established in the Underdark. The Underdark is huge. It is very well written. It is extremely well documented. So we are going to try to kind of touch on stuff and move along. There are tons of resources, and we will try to, in the show notes, maybe put some of the better ones up if you want to read more into the Underdark and use it as a platform or a setting for your games. But again, we are just going to very lightly brush on most of these. The one that I will recommend, the one that I cross-referenced a bunch whenever I was doing my outline for this episode, is a third edition source book simply called Underdark. Yeah, It's got a bunch of the different races that you can play. It's got the third edition stats, but the stats for if you wanted to create player characters of these different races, 
it includes the common ones, the drow and the dwargar and the Sverf Neblin, but it also includes some of the rarer, the ones that you don't really hear so much about. And we're going to touch on some of those a little bit later on, but it gives the stat modifiers. It gives the racial abilities. In third edition, you had the ECL, the effective character level. So it would adjust what your character's level actually was because these were more powerful than your standard races. So you would have to modify them a bit. It was a lot of math. Yeah. It was third edition. So it was a lot of math, <laughs> but it did. It gave you, I think it was like eight or 10 races in addition to what you would normally have that you could use as playable races for a game in the Underdark. And then it gave you a bunch of magic items specifically for the Underdark, a bunch of spells, a bunch of additional monsters. It gave you a list of monsters that you can pull from other source books. And if you didn't have those source books, it told you what monster to use from the standard monster manual in place of them. It was definitely a good book. It was an amazing book. I mean, it even has a bit of an adventure setting laid out in it for an adventure through the Underdark. It is a wonderful book. If you can get your hands on it, I strongly recommend it. That said. <laughs> oh, and another thing that it has that we aren't going to be talking about in this episode is the 40 or so named locations within the Underdark and how the societies within those locations interact with the world. It had an Underdark Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, it's big. It's over 200 pages, and it's just chock full of Underdark stuff. So if you really want to get yourself immersed in Underdark lore for a game, I would recommend hunting that down and finding it. I'm pretty sure that you can probably buy a digital PDF of it on the DMs Guild. Probably. They've done a pretty good job of digitizing most of the old books. Anyway, let's get into where we were actually going. The Underdark... One giant rabbit trail all the way down. All the way down. <laughs> the Underdark has essentially three strata that we're going to discuss. And they're easy to keep straight. It's the Upper Dark, the Middle Dark, and the Lower Dark. We didn't try too hard on names on this one. It's just what it is. Well, I mean, the whole thing is called the Underdark, Underdark. because it's underground and it's dark. Yes. <laughs> so again we built a bunch of lore we built a bunch of towns our creative juices were done by the time we got to names i mean it fits it, it fits the fit. world because it is something easily recalled in the vernacular yes. it is something that somebody in Waterdeep, somebody in Baldur's gate somebody in neverwinter and somebody in fey they can all say the same thing and they know exactly what they're talking about so, so you're saying it's spoken in common yes <laughs> but more than that, it's a term that is simple enough to carry across cultural differences. Yes, absolutely. Because you say Underdark in a fantasy setting, and you can pretty easily determine where that is. It's under and it's dark. It's under and it's dark. Okay. So the uppermost layer of the Underdark is the Upper Dark. It runs from the surface to about three miles underground. It is by far the easiest region to get to. It's the easiest region to travel in. It often has smaller outpost sort of settlements because this is sort of the frontier between the surface races and the Underdark races. So they're going to have outposts. They're going to have small towns. They're going to have like mining colonies and things of that nature. Not really large cities in this area. 
the big dwarven cities are going to reach down into this area, but a lot of them are still going to be considered surface cities, even if they're built into the mountains. Uh, whereas a lot of the underdark cities end up being either on the threshold where the upper dark and the middle dark meet or firmly in the middle dark because of the security of it, because the surface dwellers have to go miles underground in order to get to you. Right. And that is not an easy task to do. So some of the races that you're going to find here, one of the ones that is actually available as a playable race are the Kiteens. The Kiteens are a former slave race to the drow. They're these sort of hunchbacked humanoids that have been magically genetically engineered and sort of spliced together with spiders. So they have four arms. All of their arms have an extra joint to them so that they've got like that extra range of motion. They have mandibles coming out of their mouth. They've got these multifaceted eyes and they are capable of producing their own silk so they can spin their own silk. And they were used as basically construction slaves by the drow. So they used the silk to build structures instead of using wood or stone. This is going to be most of like your bug horror type stuff. I mean, they're sentient, they're big. Less bug horror, kind of like your anthropomorphized bugs and what was it? Ants and bugs life? Uh, kind of. Yeah, I mean, they're not they're not the Formians, which... Yeah, they are not sentient bugs. Right. They are definitely humanoid. You can tell they're still human enough to really tell, but it's got that body horror aspect of it where there's yeah. just more parts than they're supposed to be exactly and finally they also have little hooks on the palms of their hands and the pads of their feet that allow them to climb with spider climb so they can right. climb on walls and ceilings kind of creepy again these are supposed to be just slightly off you can bang up on them and not feel too bad it's kind of like you know zombies and most first person shooters where you don't feel bad about because they're human enough to look human but not quite human enough to feel bad about it Right. is really what it boils down to. <laughs> it is. And then you're also going to end up with dwarves here because they're digging too greedily and too deep. deep. Yes. You get goblinoids here. So you're going to have your goblins and your hobgoblins and your bugbears. It mentions that there are minotaurs living in this layer. Mostly because a lot of your labyrinthine things are going to be underground rather than, you know, a garden labyrinth. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and it does mention that the minotaurs prefer naturally labyrinthine caves to live in because of their nature. And even in fifth edition, the Minotaurs have that ability, forget what it's called, I think it's labyrinthine recall or something along those lines, where if they go a certain way, they can always find their way back. Okay. So that does play into that aspect. Minotaurs are another one of those races that in the third edition book are mentioned as primarily being a slave race. They are going to be one of those races where they're big and they're strong. And so there's going to be an incentive for the more organized races to try and capture them and utilize them as slave labor or muscle. Well, the drow have standing slave armies, so yeah. they would probably be soldiers in that case. Correct. You also have the Sverfneblin or the deep gnomes. The deep gnomes are 
one of my favorite of the Underdark races. They're one of the few that are not inherently evil. They largely just keep to themselves. They're miners. They're stone cutters. They're gem cutters. They're renowned throughout the Underdark as artisans. And some of the braver deep gnomes will actually be traveling merchants and will travel to the different major cities of the different races of the Underdark and sell their wares. Right. Now, the Snurf Devlin, I kind of always felt bad for. So my first real introduction of the Underdark were the Drist novels by Salvatore. There's a, almost a standing library of them now. I think I read the first five or nine, something like that, because they came out in sets and series. But the Snurf Nevelin were generally not quite despised, but definitely looked down upon. And again, they were artisans and things, but they're, oh, they're little nomi things. Nobody cares about them. We're, we're going to go and slave them all. So they kind of got a bad rap in the books, you know, a really bad role they got. But they could be interesting. They could be a really fun race to play and work with if you were going to do such. Now, my, my animosity towards halflings and gnomes and things like that are just because I am taller and such things tend to hit me in the knees. And so they kind of scare me a little bit. But I almost feel bad for the Snurf Nevelin. Well, they did get a raw deal in the Drist books. And nobody can ever like really say or spell their name correctly either because it looks Welsh almost. <laughs> well, it's Scandinavian. It's, oh, it's Germanic. Oh, I was close. It's Germanic. Gotcha. I can say it. It's Snurf Nevelin. Oh, there you go. <laughs> La-di-da. You know, it's a Germanic word, so it is pronounced how it is written. <laughs> there are no silent letters. There are no letters that are pronounced other than what they're supposed to be. And this is where we demonstrate where Ian has a very Germanic and Norse heritage, and I have a very Mediterranean heritage. <laughs> you and all of your silent letters. and <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> we're not going down that trail. No, that's a different podcast. Within the Upper Dark, you also have Stone Giants, you have Orcs, and you have Troglodytes. Troglodytes are very primitive humanoids that smell very badly. In some editions, they're more mammalian. In some editions, they're more reptilian. But at the end of the day, they're just primitive humanoids that stink. Yeah, they're primitive. They're brutish. Again, kind of pulling on that Morlock concept of not having society, not having cultural norms. And so think the caveman's caveman is pretty much where we're going with that one. Yes. Next section is the Middle Dark. This is the region from about three miles down to about 10 miles down. And this is where most of your larger Underdark cities lie. This is where your Dwergar are going to have their strongholds. This is where the Drow are going to have their cities. This is where the Illithid are going to be setting up their lairs with their elder brains. This is where the Fomorians are going to have their big ruined cities that they live in. This area is mostly habitable, but there are stretches where water is scarce or where the air is made unbreathable because of things like volcanic gas vents. Right. It is a more hazardous region to traverse than the Upper Dark because resources are scarce and the things are more dangerous. So again, going with this, there's a lot to work with this. That if you look at an analog of Earth's crust, Earth's crust, depending on who you ask or where you get your information from, they say averages around 18 miles thick, where it's obviously thinner over the oceanic plates because it's a lower altitude versus, you know, somewhere with mountains. But the quote, quote, habitable zone of the Earth's crust is somewhere between, you know, the surface and about eight miles down. And after that, it becomes unhabitable because of heat and pressure and things like that. So again, the bottom of that range would put us pretty squarely in the middle dark, you know, pretty close to that 10 miles 
falls down. The other thing you're going to do if you've played games like Dwarf Fortress or things like that, you're going to have underground rivers. You're going to have the tops of aquifers, which are mostly going to be in that upper dark, but the middle dark, you're still going to have aquifers. They're going to be less common, but now you're going to have less pockets where caves are going to be. So you have more chance of, of cave-in and collapse. And so these are definitely going to be sturdier, more refined structures and areas once you get down to this layer, just because there's enough pressure to kind of hold and support everything up. Right. And you're also going to have things like natural gas pockets. Right. You're going to have things like uh, in very seismically active areas, you may have magma vents. Yeah. You might have pockets where the magma has pushed up through fissures lower down in the crust. And so you start digging down and you dig into one of these and suddenly all of that pressure is released. And well, you and your entire mining party and your entire mining camp and everything about three miles <laughs> up, the, <laughs> up the shaft, that all gets filled in with magma and no one ever sees or hears from you ever again that said i mean if we were going from a geologic aspect i think finding like some old fault lines would actually be a really neat idea to set some like trade routes between major settlements or maybe even between the middle dark upper dark in the surface because again there is that natural access that's already been broken through and lines would be easier to travel just at risk obviously you would want your diviners to be sitting there constantly working to give you a heads up that something's coming and maybe you've got to clear out for a week or two. But if you want to take a little bit of a geologic aspect, these would make very suitable, very easy trails for people to find and follow. So a lot of the aberrations that make their homes within the Underdark also make their lairs here in the Middle Dark. So not just Mind Flayers, but also Aboliths. You're going to have Grells. If you don't know what a grail is, think a giant floating brain with tentacles hanging down off of it. They kind of look almost like Displacer Beast tentacles, but there's a bunch of them. So hanging down off of it, kind of like a jellyfish and this great big eagle beak coming out of the front between the two lobes. That's slightly terrifying. Yeah, that's what a grail is. <laughs> and it is, they're weird. Yeah. Again, there, there's a lot of strangeness in the Underdark. I am not saying that there was some chemical intoxicants being used while some of the lore and creatures were being made to various versions of D&D, but it's probably a safe bet. Then you also have Hook Horrors, which are, they almost look like a featherless owl bear with hooks for hands. Right. And that one, I am pretty certain, is because they used to go and pick up the big packs of various like dinosaurs and little toys. Yeah. And so they had this one. They were like, this looks weird. We need a mini for a monster. What can I make this? Yeah. What can this be? <laughs> what can this be? And that's how the hook horror was born. I'm pretty sure that that's the story behind the hook horror. That is pure speculation. We do not actually know, but again, it might be a safe bet. I vaguely remember hearing that story before, like oh, okay. in a video interview somewhere. Hey everyone, Ian here in post. I was incorrect on this point. The hook horror does not come from an old toy set. However, the boulette, the rust monster, and the owl bear all do. And I'll leave a link for the article talking about those vintage toys that inspired D&D monsters in the show notes. So those are some of the aberrations that you're going to find. You're also going to find 
Grimlocks. Grimlocks are a more primitive humanoid race. They have very thick, leathery skin, and they are notable for not having eyes. Not only do they not have eyes, they don't have eye sockets. It's just a stretch of blank flesh running across the top half of their face where their eyes are supposed to be. Yeah, I'm not a fan of these. <laughs> Again, and that is a weird thing with me with art. i sure it says something about me psychologically. I generally like art that's faceless, but these things kind of weird me out a little bit. Well, because they're not faceless. They're just eyeless. Eyeless. That could be the difference. That might be it. Because they have no eyes, they have blind sight because they are able to navigate by smell and by sound, which of course also made them susceptible to effects that generated sound or smell. Right. So things like thunder spells, which were sonic spells in third edition, or things like stinking cloud. Imagine if you had to navigate everywhere based on your sense of smell and somebody dropped a stink bomb at yeah. your feet. It would be the example of like the, having someone drop a flare in front of your face where you're just you're overwhelmed in a sensory aspect yeah it would be the equivalent of a flashbang yeah another one of the races that show up here are the orogs the orogs depending on where you're getting your sources in this instance they're just referred to as deep orcs so they are effectively a sub-race of orcs that just live further down in the Underdark. In 2nd edition, Orogs were a variant half-orc, where the other half, instead of being human, was ogre. Ooh, I like it. So yeah, we ran into a couple of those whenever we were talking about Grumsh's realm in Akron. Correct. There were a couple of Orogs in there. And the last monster class that you run into are Umberhulks. Uh, right. Umberhulks are a personal favorite of mine because they fit a niche. They have a lot of flavor to them. Yeah. Because they have that ability to confuse you with their gaze. And so you end up having encounters where you're trying to fight the Umber Hulk, but you can't look at the Umber Hulk. And so it creates a lot of very interesting scenarios and you end up getting a lot of very creative problem solving out of it. So you end up utilizing a lot of area of effect spells. You end up having a lot of intentional collateral damage. Yes. That you get to also play with. And it just gives you a whole lot more to work with as a DM. Yeah, it can be a good way to ramp up challenge for your party members is, I mean, sometimes a straightforward battle is a little too easy. So you have to make either battle more difficult, which is, I mean, this is a challenge or make it more costly. And things like collateral damage is definitely a way to ramp up the cost of a battle. If you're having to throw a lot of area of expect spells and have a lot of splash damage, either to damage the party itself or maybe to damage and possibly threaten the goal or the prize at the end, the MacGuffin, be it a person or an item or a thing. That is always a choice the party needs to weigh. So that can always make an adventurous twist to just your common everyday smash and grabs. Oh, and doing a lot of collateral damage in a cave leads to the obvious that. consequence of collapse, cave-in. You end up blocking off avenues whether it is you block off the way further down to where you need to go, and now you have to either spend a lot of time trying to clear it, or you have to find another way around, or you block off your escape route, 
And so now you have to go deeper into the Underdark. You know, those are also elements to keep in mind whenever you have that sort of thing going on. And that so like, actually would be a good way to hook your party in is they, you know, they're in the upper dark and they're going down on something that should be relatively simple to do. And they get there and something happens and they've got to use some of these area of effect spells. And so they've collapsed their point of retreat or their point of excise. And so the only way to go back is to go forward. And now they have to go deeper into the Underdark to find a path back out. Yeah. Or they have to willingly collapse the tunnel behind them because the things coming up are too big and too numerous and too dangerous to allow through. And you don't have the manpower to stop them. Yeah. And so you have to basically buy as much time as you can for the forces further up the tunnel to reinforce and to get all of the defenses in place so that by the time this invading force reaches them, they actually have a reasonable chance of success. Right. No, I like that. And I like the idea of using environmental hazards within the Underdark. And you have the option and ability to use environmental hazards, be it a cave-in, be it a gas vent, be it a magma pool, be it an aquifer, be it a cliff, be it a slope that's maybe slickened by wetness or moss or molds or general darkness. As much as you do any of the outer planes or any of the other various planes, you have these options that you can use in just as frequently, whereas the surface tends to be a little bit more, unless there's something built there that's not an option, you have a lot of natural features that can be a challenge or a risk in the Underdark. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so now you have the third layer, which is the Lower Dark. The Lower Dark starts at about 10 miles down, and it keeps going. Nobody knows exactly how deep it goes because it is so dangerous to try and traverse it. Beyond here, there be monsters. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the entire Lower Dark is too hostile to support settlements of any real size. There may be a few like little tiny outposts just into the lower dark, but I wouldn't put much more than that. Right. Food, water, and breathable air are all rare to non-existent this deep. And so you end up having a lot of creatures down here that don't have to breathe. So you have things like elementals down here. You're going to have aboliths down here as well. You're going to have beholders down here because they're from the far realm where normal laws of physics don't actually apply. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are going to be some elements of that. You're going to find the Darrow down here. The Darrow are a small humanoid race. They have uniformly pale eyes without any pupils or irises visible. And they all bear a form of madness. Most of them have a madness that manifests in violence. And there are a couple of different origin stories for the Darrow. One, specifically the one that the Dwergar believe, is that the Darrow were once another clan of dwarves that had been captured and enslaved by the Illithid, because that was the origin story for the Dwergar. They were a clan, clan Dwergar, who were captured and enslaved by the Illithid. And over centuries to millennia of enslavement, they slowly changed physiologically into the Dwergar as they are presented today. 
they believe that the Darrow have a similar origin story and that their brains sort of got warped a bit extra by the Illithid, by the constant psionic influence. But and I mean, I mean, it would stand to reason. Yeah. I mean, it's a good theory because they do resemble small dwarves. They resemble dwarves that are not quite as stocky, not quite as muscular as, say, the Dwergar are. Maybe instead of dwarves, because like, you have like the Snivevelin. Oh, you can't, can never say that Snurf name. Nevelin. Snurf Nevelin, yeah. Where they're basically gnomes. You know, maybe these are the version of the Underdark Halfling, kind of another one of the diminutive races that have been pulled under. You can play a little bit with the lore. Um, yeah. Again, that. Just as easily could be dwarfs, but this way we kind of get everybody represented around it out too. Yeah. Another one that was suggested that I kind of liked is that they used to live on the surface, but were cast into the Underdark by the World Serpent for opening portals to the Far Realms. Okay. And that was one thing I was going to bring up too, is here in the Lower Dark, you are going to find a lot more portals and gates to the various planes, either be it the plane of Earth, be it to the outer realms or some of the other mid-realm type things, just because... Especially the Shadowfell. Yes. In the older editions, it would be the plane of Shadow, but in 5th edition, it would be the Shadowfell. Just because Um, it's dark, it's hostile, it's got either pools of magma or pools of water, and you already have elementals here. This is a perfect, perfect place to start putting up portals and gateways. Yes. Absolutely. And this is one of those locations where it's so far down that you're on the fringes of what qualifies as the material realm to begin with. So the fabric of reality is a little more friable down here. It's a little easier to break into to pull those threads apart in order to weave a portal from another location into it. So that is definitely something to consider is that the deep, deep dark has been terrifying for humanity for a long time. Play into that. Yes. Make it a reason why the deep, deep dark is terrifying. This just reminds me of that scene from Hellboy 2 where the elf prince, you know, at the beginning says, I'm going to remind people why they're afraid of the dark. And he lets loose the tooth fairies. And there were a bunch of fairies that consumed human bones, primarily teeth, because that's what that's exposed first. Yeah, I love that scene. Anyway. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) And then the last category of creatures that you're going to find down here in the lower dark are undead. As you do. Liches love to set up layers in the lower dark. Because they don't need to eat, they don't need to drink, they don't need to breathe. People are going to generally leave them alone. And it's so inhospitable that very few people are going to even attempt to reach them. And it still qualifies as being in the material plane. So as long as they don't go through one of these portals, they don't cross over one of these boundaries into a different plane of existence, they can still get to their phylactery if they are destroyed. This is exactly the physical opposite of like the wise hermit sitting on the very remote high mountain peak where people can go up and ask him questions and he will offer helpful advice and wisdom like i said this is the exact polar opposite of that (laughs) the lich is down as far and deep as you can go and he might just might rip your soul out for his flattery if you need him well he probably will yeah he might answer a question maybe possibly and then he's gonna eat you yeah so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some of the races in the underdark that we haven't really touched on yet okay the first and the most prominent are going to be the drow yes the drow 
is a race that is almost synonymous with the Underdark. They are easily identified in comparison to the other elven races by their dark skin tone, usually somewhere gray to violet. And they're typically contrasting often stark white hair. Yeah. Again, culturally, a lot of squeakiness with this here. We've talked about it, so we'll brush over a bit of that. Yeah. Um, kind of tropey, kind of eh. And again, this has been addressed by various authors and things like that. And they said, we did it at the time. We didn't know anybody. We've learned now, and we are moving away from this. And I can respect that as a response. So by lore, the drow are the elves who continued to worship Lolth and the Dark Seldarine after the split of the elven pantheon between Lolth and Corallon the Rethian. Per third edition lore... They were cursed by Corallon for abandoning the Seldarine to follow Lolth. And Lolth as a villainous deity, as a point of lore, I find super interesting. From a lore aspect, I like Lolth. I I would not be a follower of Lolth, but very interesting. Lots of stuff to work with. Very ruthless, very heartless, very pragmatic. Lolth is a fun, big, bad, evil person to do. Yes. The drow have long been vilified in lore generally depicted as uniformly evil racial supremacists and slavers. Yeah. In recent years, additional major drow cities have been introduced in lore, greatly diversifying their cultures. The current string of Salvatore books plays into some of the other major cities of the drow and shows that, you know, really it's Menzo Baranzan or Menzo Baranzan, however you want to pronounce it. It's mainly just this city that's full of a bunch of shits. Yeah, that happens. And that makes sense. You can have a collection of douche nozzles. Yeah. That makes more sense. And it is the culture inherent within the ruling class, the noble houses that constantly vie and compete for power within the city. These are the elements that are really the terrible individuals of the setting, but for a long time, that was the benchmark. That was the prime example of what drow are. Correct. And we didn't really have any sort of contrasting views to say, well, this is this pocket of drow society, whereas drow society as a whole has the whole variance of the moral spectrum. Right. And this leads into Ian's earlier premise that, you know, a lot of what we know about the Underdark kind of does sound like surface world propaganda. So they picked like the absolute worst example and said, hey, look, they all look like this. It's kind of one of those things. Talking about various forms of propaganda, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a fun story. When I was in high school, I worked at an electrical and plumbing warehouse. And there was a gentleman who had immigrated from Russia in the 80s and was telling me about, you know, when he was a child growing up, Russian propaganda, Russian TV always showed America. They would show the race riots from the civil rights movements where the police were unleashing dogs and spraying people down. Whenever they showed the U.S. military, it was always with their gas masks on because that's why they wouldn't look human. They looked hideous. And so they would pick the absolute worst and most frightening aspects of American culture to show the people. You kind of get this again, if you were looking at what we know as the Underdark as surface propaganda, then yes, they've picked the most horrifying and frightening visages of these subterranean races and showed them and say, hey, look, they're all like this. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I use that headcanon. Yeah. To say that The Underdark races, as presented in the older editions, are presented through the lens of the player races that are in the player's handbook. And another thing that 
especially the drow from the older editions, because Menzo Baranzen is almost exclusively a Lolf worshipping city to the point where it's almost a monotheistic culture. And it is strongly presented that Lolf is the dominant, if not the only deity worshipped by the drow in the older editions. I mean, we know that there are additional gods within the Dark Seldarine. There's something like, I think there's like 11 or 13 gods within the Dark Seldarine. So subordinate gods to Lolf. Okay. But Lolf is the only one that was ever really stressed in the older editions, especially in third edition. Their entire adventure paths where you're dealing with the drow and you're basically only dealing with worshippers of Lolf. And one of the big things was the War of the Spider Queen novels. Okay. They were contemporary with when the third edition Underdark book came out. And during those books, spoiler alert for a 20 year old fantasy series, <laughs> Lolf went silent. She stopped answering prayers. She stopped giving spells to her clerics. Ooh. She just disappeared and it threw the entire structure of drow society on its head because especially using Menzo Baranzen as the model for drow society, it is a matriarchal society where the clerics of Lolf, who are all women. Yeah, and they run everything. Yeah, and so I could totally see that as they go silent, those that burn their spells, you know, first because they're expecting to get more and suddenly can't talk, that would create all kinds of wonderful intrigue because obviously you're not favored by Lolf. And so if you hold your spells back, you could still show some favor. And as we talk about this further, there is a ton of political intrigue within Mesoburinzian anyway. And mm -hmm. it's all vicious. It's all nasty. It's all opportunistic. And so, yeah, this would throw this entire city into just absolute pandemonium. Yeah. And I do also want to point out that they stress very heavily the matriarchal society of the drow. Yes. And that has always struck me as being a little bit squick. I mean, I appreciate that there is a society where there is a strong matriarchal society. However, the way that they chose to utilize it, the way that they chose to play it out, it's not great. <laughs> It's not great. I can, as you bring it up, I could see that. It's nothing that squicked me as I read it other than, you know, it was different. You know, they were taking something more like the Spartan cultural things and kind of flipping them on its head where, yeah, if you had a male son, you might raise them to be basically a soldier or a gate guard or something like that. But unless they were top prime physical condition or you could trade them away or something, you were just as likely to expose them. Um, in Spartan society, it wasn't quite that bad with daughters, but in a large way, unless, you know, you could marry them off or they looked particularly fair, male babies were definitely the goal in Spartan society. So I took it as that and they did need big bads. And so I'm not going to say that it went full out misogynistic with that. But as you bring it up, I could see how you could get that flavor with it. Yes, it definitely smacks of misogyny to me. OK, but I said I mean, looking I back, I can kind of see it, but I didn't come across at first. All right, enough with the drow. Yeah. <laughs> the drow have uh, problems. We, we, we enjoy problems. them. They've got problems. If you really want to read in on the drow problems, 
they made an entire other book in third edition called Drow of the Underdark. So you, so you can cover all of your bases with that one. Or honestly, as problematic as they are, just because they are so, I don't know what the word I want to look for. They are so early on and so popular in D&D lore. Read the first Drizzt trilogy. It's a decent story. It's not high literature. I mean, it, it is a bit campy. It's a bit pulpy. Again, understand the time it was written, but the story overall isn't terrible. And you get a lot of experience of the Underdark. You find a lot of really interesting characters. And if you want to base a campaign off of this, it gives a lot of inspiration. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. The other major race that you're going to run into down here in the Underdark are the Dwargar or the Grey Dwarves. As I mentioned, they were once a dwarven clan, Clan Dwargar. They were one of the sub-kingdoms of the overarching dwarven kingdom slash empire of Shanatar in Forgotten Realms lore. And they broke off and they created their own little community where it was a theocratic sub-kingdom where they worshipped Leduger, the dwarven god of crafting, who was very strict. He was very, you obey your superiors. Might makes right. The people who have a lot, have a lot because they had the strength to take it, and they had the strength to hold it. And that if if you can take from someone else, and you can hold on to it, then you have the right to keep it. This very Hobbes and Locke in philosophy, you know, again, it's the lives of man are short, violent and brutish. You can keep whatever you can defend that kind of thing. Yeah. And so during a period called the Mind Stalker Wars, this particular clan was cut off from the rest of the Shield Dwarf clans of Shanatar, and they were captured and enslaved by the Illithid, who gradually transformed them into the form that they have now. And so they have a long-standing hatred towards the other dwarves, especially the other Shield Dwarf clans, because they feel like the other dwarves abandoned them, that they let them stay in servitude. Because if I was reading the dates right, the Illithid kept the Dwergar as a slave race for like 4,000 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's. I'm not sure if the numbers are right, but that's what it looked like. It looked like roughly 8,000 pre-Dale Reckoning to roughly 4,000 pre-Dale Reckoning. So yeah, it was a long time. And so they have a big axe to grind. Right. And so going back with Ian's premise earlier on talking about adventure hooks or ideas, you know, having dwarves trying to unite the various underdark clan species races and then going back up to push back against some of these dwarven clans that are digging too deep or to balance things out. You have a perfect built animosity here as these Dwergar have felt exiled and left behind by what was once, you know, brothers. And so there is that giant chip on their shoulder. And this leads really into storylines and arcs. And this would be a perfect race to do that with. Yeah. And then you can also play into the other side of that, where from the Shield Dwarf side, you're like, you chose to move away. You chose to segregate yourself from us. You chose to separate yourself from us. By your separation, you excluded yourself from any sort of salvation from us. You you freed us from obligation. Yeah. That is the argument that they would make 
And then situation. again, you could take this and tie this back into how much of what we know of the Underdark is actual propaganda. Maybe, you know, so this way the clans wouldn't feel bad about what they did historically or maybe vice versa. So again, you could really play a lot with this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The next group are the Deep Emaskari. The Deep Emaskari are humans native to the Underdark. They're descendants of the ruling caste of the long dead human kingdom of Emaskar. They were responsible for pulling humans from other worlds into Toril to serve as their slaves. And then these slaves rose up and threw down their masters. And the few that were able to escape, escaped into the Underdark and used magic to create basically a biodome that they were able to set up a second Imaskari kingdom in. And they stayed sealed up in there for like 2,000 years. Everyone thought that the Imaskari were all wiped out until the Great Seal on Deep Imaskar finally broke and opened up and they were able to venture back out into the world. If you want a Stargate campaign, this is exactly how you get a Stargate campaign. It's kind of cool because, again, they use this for the reasoning of why you have different lore and pantheons within the D&D realms as they, oh, well, here's this, you know. And so you could have these Iskari pulling people or cultures or things in even from, you know, our present real world realm and, you know, magically sucking people into D&D land, you know, under Dark Toriel, Faerun. And there you go. If you need a reason for your party members, you're going to do the trope of that. Hey, you're all regular people. And somehow you get transported to D&D. This would be a way to do that as well. So again, this bridges a lot of gaps for story. Yeah. So during all of our planar episodes, we talked a lot about the Mulharandi and Untheric pantheons. Mulharand and Unther are two kingdoms that were founded by two distinct groups from two distinct worlds that were both pulled into Faerun by the Emeskari. Right. So the presence of the Egyptian gods and the presence of the Mesopotamian gods within Faerun in second edition is because of the ancestors of the deep Emeskari. Right. At the time of the Great Seal breaking and the deep Emeskari returning to the world, while their ancestors were categorically evil, the deep Emeskari fall more into neutrality. They are a very curious group. They are very uh, eager to learn different cultural things. They're very eager to learn magic because they are a very magical race, as would befit the descendants of an empire that opened portals to other worlds to get their slaves. The Emiskari here, though, are going to value learning over moral obligation. So these are the ones that are going to make the horrible, horrible science experiments out of people they may have hired or captured. They are going to do things or try things that might be a wonderful benefit or might be absolutely horrific and not blink an eye either way, which I think, you know, falls under that line of true neutral, which is really hard to play in most cases. Just that they don't care as long as they can learn something. As long as there's information to be gleaned from it, they'd be willing to do it. Right. Another group that you can run into are the Gloamings. Gloamings are plane-touched individuals influenced by the Plane of Shadow slash Shadowfell. They are to the Plane of Shadow what Tieflings are to Bator. Okay. Or what Genasi are to the Elemental Planes. They tend to have pale skin 
and furry wings. In the art that I've seen, they're sort of butterfly shaped, but they're furry, black to dark gray to brown, some sort of color in that palette. And one of the things that the gloamings have is that they are able to illuminate their skin at will. Nice. From not lit at all up to as bright as a torch. That's kind of awesome. And a lot of them will have tattoos that whenever they light up, the tattoos appear almost three-dimensional. Oh, that'd be awesome. The way that they're inked. That would be really cool. They have a uniform inbred hatred of the drow. The legend holds that the drow learned how to cast the spell Cloak of Dark Power, which is a third edition spell that negated their weakness to bright light by basically capturing and torturing them until they figured out how the magic worked. And so despite being a very chaotic, very independent race, they have a uniform hatred of the drow because of that. Okay. By contrast, they are largely unmolested by the illithid. The illithid find their brains unpalatable and find them to be unreliable as slaves because of their strong, chaotic streak. So they just stopped bothering. I kind of like these things. <laughs> I would totally run a gloomly. Just just be like, why? Another race that you're going to find down here are the Kuatoas. We mentioned them a little bit in a couple of recent episodes. They are fish humanoids. They are all a little bit mad. They are capable of spontaneously generating divine beings. Um, so if you can get enough Kuatoas to believe strongly enough that a thing is true, the personification of that thing will pop into existence as a Kuatoan god. Very nice. For me, the Kuatoas, I see these and I picture these. If you've ever played the game Darkest Dungeon, the first one, when you fight your critters and your monsters in the harbor section of the mansion, you've got the very fish people. They call them pelagic because Darkest Dungeon uses some very old arcane words as part of the atmosphere of the game, which I wonder, but they are very pelagic. They are very fish-like. And so, you know, have fish heads and gills and scales, but still humanoid as in two arms, two legs, upright torso, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I just want to say this because it's fun to say their primary <laughs> goddess is Blibdulpulp. That was not a twitch. <laughs> that was not a twitch because I do not have Tourette's. Yes. Bacon. I do. And I said bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I might even leave that one in. So the Kuotoans have an interesting relationship with the drow. Per the fifth edition books, they've almost retconned what was in the third edition books. In the fifth edition books, they say that they have a very antagonistic relationship with the drow, claiming that the drow have constantly attempted to exterminate them over the ages. In third edition is very different. Okay. Third edition, they're described as having a very cordial relationship with the drow. There was an event that I, unfortunately, I didn't get around to looking up called Sorath Nusum, where after this event, for whatever reason, the Kuotoan clergy issued edicts proclaiming that all drow were now to be considered honorary kuotoas. Interesting. And so from that point on, the drow and anyone who is known to be a slave or an ally of the drow were granted free access to all parts of all kuotoan settlements with the exception of the church and the spawning pools. Now with this, I could very easily see something in the Dark Times 4th <laughs> edition or in between that maybe Lolth had sent agents, emissaries, whatever 
to either try to convert, break down some of these areas or otherwise corrupt these areas. Because this is something very much Loth would have done. And maybe that's what caused this shift. Again, as a story writer, as a DM, you could definitely build that up one way or the other as you could. Because again, Loth would definitely do something extremely subversive like this. And then the last group that I really wanted to cover because they're really cool. I haven't been able to figure out exactly how this is pronounced. They're either Slyths or Slythes. S-L-Y-T-H. They appear as bald humanoids, but they are actually ooze-like shapeshifters who prefer to hold themselves in a humanoid form. They're basically Odo from Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I was going to say, someone watched way too much Deep Space Nine and was like, I need a character. (laughs) Oh, I know. (laughs) As a group, they view themselves as custodians of the Underdark, seeking to help the other races exist harmoniously within their environs. They're generally on good terms with all of the humanoid and monstrous humanoid races of the Underdark, especially the Svirfneblin and the Orogs. Okay. They don't get on well with the Aboliths, and they actively try to avoid the Illithid. Okay. So again, it seems like we've got another true neutral race, which again, I like true neutral. Tends to be difficult to play, but I do enjoy. And I can see why they wouldn't get on well with the Aboliths and why they would avoid the Illithid, because they're not natural to the Underdark. Right. Aboliths, depending on your origins, Aboliths might be native to the world that you're in. They might be from the far realm. It's hard saying, but Illithids are definitely from the far realm. They're yeah. definitely not supposed to be here. They do not belong. There are several different origin stories that you can choose from as to how these sliths or slides came about. The first would be that they're a rare form of Genasi made from a combination of water and earth elements, possibly Exposure to the para-elemental plane of ooze. That would be a lot of fun. One could be that they are the result of abolith experimentation on humans in Darrow, which, which would, would ex- yeah. explain their animosity towards the aboliths. One is that they were created by Shar, who is the goddess of darkness and night, who formed them from a gelatinous cube and breathed sentience into them. I kind of like that one. And then there's... Don't we, wait, wait, wait. Let's okay. draw this one back a second. Because last week we talked about, you know, the gelatinous cube. And we had the one gelatinous cube that was made sentient. Yes. If for the life of me, cannot remember its name. But this... Uh, Globadule. Globadule, yes. And so this would fall in possibly with other forms of lore that if Shar had noticed Globadule at some point gained sentience, then... Well, Maybe. this would have predated that. Okay. Yeah, these would have predated that greatly because okay. chronologically, the timeline is still progressing through the editions. Okay. And so Glabadul is a fifth edition creation in the module out of the abyss. Okay. So this would have occurred well before that. Gotcha. Okay, then. But it does show within lore that it is a possibility. Yes. But I like it. I do like this one. This one gives me a bit of excitement. And the last one is that they were actually created not by Shar, but by Shantea, who is the Earth Mother, the goddess of life and bounty, in a similar fashion with the intention of having them tend the deep places of the Earth. And by them being an ooze they can drop into their shapeless form to pass through areas that would otherwise be impassable to a humanoid. And so it does 
lend itself to that train of thought that they are designed to be custodians of the Underdark. It does. And it also ties back in with their temperament, as we discussed just a little bit ago, where they're trying to work with all of the Underdark races to let them live in harmony with their environment as well. That also would plug in very easily. Yeah. All right. We're running a little bit long, so let's go ahead and blitz through a few of the different monsters that you might run into here. Some of them we have already talked about. The first one that I immediately thought of, because drow are almost synonymous with the Underdark, driders are almost synonymous with drow. Yes. They are drow who have been transformed by Lolth's divine power. Basically, you take a drow, and from the waist down, you take away its people legs, and you give it a spider body. Right. And that's what a drider is. They're usually the result of someone who was brought before Lolth and given a test, because once you achieve a certain amount of power, especially if you were a cleric of Lolth, you would be drawn in and given this test of loyalty, I think is what it was called. If you were slain in the process, then your soul got absorbed by Lolth. If you failed but survived, you were transformed into a Drider. Right. As a rule, Driders and Drow are enemies. Yes. Because Driders bear the shame of their failure, and it is clearly present to anyone who can see them. Any drow knows what a drider is. Right. Now, another thing that came up in the Salvatore books was you had this trial by ordeal, or also if you had just done something enough to anger a high up or a strong enough noble house, then one of the clerics or priestesses of Lolf could drag you down and with divine power, convert you into. And again, it was a mark of absolute shame and it was the lowest thing they could do to you i mean more than like spitting in you or wiping out your family yeah we're just going to turn you into a drow so everyone can see how miserable and ugly you are now turn you into a drider drider yes that thing (laughs) (laughs) and the one thing that has been present through the additions that has been paired back a little bit in 5e they were poisonous yes um they could poison with a bite they could take their natural poison and apply it to their weapons In older editions, the poison was paralytic. In 5th edition, it just deals extra poison damage. As it does. Yeah, let's make them have the weakest bonus damage type in the game. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) They're scary enough as it is. They are kind of terrifying. They do have some cool minis, though. I will say the whole Drider body concept is really kind of awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, we didn't rush up on the physical appearance, did we? I mentioned that you take a drow, you lop off its legs, and you replace it with a spider body. Yeah, that's okay. That's generally what it is. They retain their personality. They retain their memories. They retain all of their weapon proficiencies. So, yeah, they can still carry a crossbow or scimitar or whatever weapon that they happen to be proficient with right if they're a spellcaster they would still be able to cast spells and that would be rarer for a mage or a wizard to be because generally those were killed outright again according to a lot of solitor lore just because they were dangerous enough that you didn't want to give them a chance to retaliate absolutely weapons for these tend to be bladed weapons either axes or swords daggers and knives just again going with from the books drow lore and weapon usage but yeah driders are Definitely fun little things to play with. All right. Because we have to have a dragon. There are dragons in the Underdark. There are dragons made in the the Underdark. (laughs) They are called deep dragons. They are highly intelligent, notably so even for dragons. They are conniving. They are scheming. They don't trust the drow, but 
commonly work with the drow to further their own goals. And they will often find groups of drow that have a similar goal in mind to ally themselves with. With these temperament-wise, I would see these probably closer to green dragons than anything else. They do have an acid breath, so they're more in line with a black black. dragon. But yes, temperament-wise, they would definitely be more in line with a green dragon. And I mean, that's about it. There's nothing else really special about them. Uh, Just surprise underground dragon. There you go. Yep. (laughs) There's cave fishers. Cave fishers are these giant spiders. They've got two oversized front legs and they drop nets of webbing onto the creatures that walk under them to catch them so that they can pull them up and eat them. That's all that they do. Yeah, again, these get mentioned in some of the early Drist books. They're fairly easy to throw out. They make an easy trap for the DM to throw up. Obviously, if you're not paying attention, webbing is really easy to miss, so it'd be a higher DC to notice. And then, depending on how you want to do it, depending how up the spider is, you can give the party member or the player, you know, a turn or two or three to figure a way out of the webbing before they get numbed. Right. You have a whole host of various insectoid or beast creatures you have umber hulks as i mentioned you've got giant spiders you got purple worms they're going to be burrowing through down here if it's subterranean you're probably going to find it down here yeah on kegs bullets cloakers piercers and ropers and bears oh my oh Uh, probably not bears (laughs) not not this far down (laughs) we mentioned it briefly the fomorians are going to be down here they roam throughout the underdark you've got your aboliths your Illithids, your Beholders, and your Neogi. They're all going to be down here. They find it easier to exist in the Underdark because it keeps them away from the numerous prying eyes on the surface world. It's easier to hide in the Underdark than it is on the surface. You got trolls, you're going to have ogres, you're going to have various monstrous humanoids, as we mentioned, minotaurs, orogs, and troglodytes. Um, You're going to have lots of different kinds of undead down here. One of the creatures that is going to be kind of interesting, it's going to be probably closer down towards the lower dark. It's going to be around where the Plane of Shadow slash Shadowfell bleeds into the Underdark are Nagpas. Nagpas are these twisted, vulture-headed humanoids, and they are tied into lore with the Raven Queen. Okay. So the way that the lore goes, the Raven Queen was basically performing a ritual where she drew on the energy of her followers, the Shadar Kai, in an effort to become a divine entity, punch through the Feywild into Arvandor, which is the realm where the Seldarine, the Elven Pantheon, was. Show up in Arvandor as a god and use her stature as a divine being to basically several way to the table. No, what she was wanting to do was call a meeting basically between Corallon and Lolf to have them reconcile and get the Seldarine back into one cohesive pantheon. Oh my. Yeah, it was very ambitious. Extremely ambitious. <laughs> Terribly planned. I mean, you don't step into that kind of argument. You just don't. Well, she didn't get a chance to step into that argument because as they were planning this ritual, an cabal of evil elven wizards caught wind of it and they decided that they were going to perform their own ritual and siphon off some energy 
from it to enhance their own abilities. What's a little spiritual embezzlement? And so she's in the middle of the ritual and she's punching her way through and it's going well. And then she notices the energy drain and the ritual starts to unravel. And at this point, she is now a quasi divine being and she lashes out with this curse onto these evil wizards that transforms them into the Nagpa, that transforms them into these twisted, vulture-headed people. But in the process, the spell energies end up ripping her physical form apart. Her soul gets sucked into the Shadowfell or the Plane of Shadow, where it ends up reconstituting as the Raven Queen. Nice. But yeah, so that's what the Nagpas are. That is some awesome lore. I love that. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. I do want to read this from Mordenkainen's Tomophos on the creation of the Nagpas. When their ritual failed with catastrophic results, the wizards in the consortium were pulled into the Shadowfell along with the queen and the Shadar Kai, but their misfortune didn't end there. Their former queen arose from the center of a maze of ash and let loose a scream of ebon smoke that penetrated the flesh and minds of the wizards, turning their bones black and lacerating their souls. Their cries of agony merged with her own, and when her scream faded, the wizards had been mutated and warped into the scabrous, vulturish creatures known as Nagpas. Now they wander the plains as wretched monsters, marked forever by the Raven Queen's curse and banished from her presence. I really like the Raven Queen. She's not up there with Father Bear, but she is definitely high on that list. So just a couple more things. Elementals play a big part in the Underdark, especially earth and water elementals, but possibly also things like Zorn, Delvers from 3rd edition, some of the para-elementals, probably Ooze, maybe Magma, maybe Ice. Smoke is unlikely, but you could make an argument for it. I would see smoke near some of the magma pools, perhaps, but... Perhaps. But you could also pull in anything from the quasi-elemental planes on the negative side of the sphere. So the planes of dust and salt, probably ash, maybe vacuum, especially in the lower dark crossover to the quasi-elemental plane of vacuum would be more likely because you're so far down. You're, You're going to have areas where the air just can't get there. Right. And then next on the list is oozes. We did a whole episode last week on oozes. This is the native environment for the Oblex because this is where the Illithid are. The Illithid created the Oblex. They had to have a supply of oozes somewhere for them to experiment with, so they're going to be pulling it from their environment. As we mentioned, the Bone Ooze is a subterranean ooze. It's going to be down here in the Underdark somewhere. Probably Middle Dark or Lower Dark. It's probably going to be in the Middle Dark. Yeah. Which, again, this is one of those things we brought up talking about the bonus last week is trying to do like one of these wars between either two drow cities or a drow city and another race. And as they build up these frontier spots, it just they go there and it's completely wiped out. So they're thinking it's the other side of the other faction wiping everybody out when really this ooze just kind of sweeps through every now and again and just kind of slurps everything up and leaves behind the bones. And this creates this building and ramping up animosity. It specifically doesn't leave behind the bones. Yeah, I mean, at least, yeah, that's right. Everything but the bones. Yeah, it sucks all the bones out and oh, leaves and the... just leaving the, yeah, the carcasses. Leaves the, the meat suit behind. Yeah, that's right. And then the last one, one that you mentioned whenever we were getting ready, myconids. Yes. Again, I've got a warm, fuzzy spot for mushrooms. 
<laughs> yeah, the Myconids would definitely have a place down here. Yeah. There's actually an entire chapter in Out of the Abyss dealing with Myconids and a fungal area of the Underdark. So, yes, the Myconids would definitely be there. And this is far from an exhaustive list. Yeah, again, we just had to kind of brush on everything. We could spend days and days going over Underdark stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just to cover each of the different regions laid out in the Underdark in the books, we could devote an entire episode to each of those, and that would be like two months worth of episodes. Yes. Yeah, there's a ton here if you want to do something in the Underdark, do. Yes. There's lots of room to do it. There's lots of places where you can go and do it. There's lots of resources that you can pull from to get ideas to run something in the Underdark. Whether it is a full campaign taking place in the Underdark or whether it is an arc of your campaign that goes into the Underdark. That is definitely something that I encourage you to do. Yes, I fully support this. Now, again, the Underdark has been, I'm not going to say it's underutilized. You see it in a fair amount of games, but not a lot. But again, just with the amount of resources that has been devoted, either through lore or through books, really there is a vast supply of information for you to be able to delve into and start building up stuff. There is a ton of stuff written in the Underdark in third edition. Yes. So if you wanted to go and look at some older published materials, 3rd edition has a bunch of stuff. Into the Demon Web Pits, I think, is the name of one. I know Demon Web Pits is part of the title. That is actually one where you're going into the Underdark and end up going into Lolth's Realm in the Abyss. Ooh. So it ties in Lolth's Realm into all of that. But yeah, there are several different adventure modules that were released during third edition that take place in the Underdark. So those are the sort of things that you can look at to draw some ideas if you're looking to run a game there. All right. I think that pretty well does it. Yeah, I think, I think I mean, that, we had to go kind of quick and even trying to go quick, we went a little long again. There is a lot to cover. I'm not going to say there's too much because there's never too much, but there's definitely a lot to cover. So thank you everyone for listening. We are going to be having our 100th episode live stream this coming Friday, August 19th at 9 p.m. We have some of our friends from the community. We have Rob coming back from World Build with us, going to be joining Excellent. us. We've got John from Tale of the Manticore. We've got Mike from 19 Hits the Dragon. We've got a couple others that are still tentative. We're going to see if they're going to be joining us or not. But we're going to have a grand old time, I think. Pop some popcorn, bring some snacks. Absolutely. You can join us in chat in Twitch, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste. If you want to send us questions for the Q&A that we're going to be doing, there is a link in the show notes for a Google form that I set up to submit questions for the Q&A. It is also in the pinned comment on our Twitter account. It is also, if you go to our link tree, linktr.ee slash undercommontaste, it is the top link in our link tree right now. So awesome. it is. I tried to make it as easy as possible for you to find the form to send us questions because we really want to have some stuff that we can talk over with our friends yes. while we're having our Q&A. Absolutely. Now, are we releasing our November cat out of the bag yet? We're going to be doing that during episode 100. We're going Excellent. to do that during I'm very excited. Yeah, we have something coming up in November that we're really excited about, and we're going to address that during episode 100. 
We are also in the process of recording an actual play that is going to be playing the five weeks that we're going to be off. So August 31st and then the four Wednesdays in September. We are joined by our original friend of the show, uh, Dr. Mary Kroll, Hannah Miller, who is the editor for the 19 Hiss the Dragon podcast. And Eric Holden, who is one of the two co-hosts of the Goblin's Corner podcast. James is the fourth player. I am the DM. We're having a grand old time. Oh my. It is the game that we're running is the Tarask Task of Maureen Trask, which was a module written by DM Dave and released by Tabletop Audio through their Patreon account. Uh, Christmas time of 2019. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot lot more dangerous than (laughs) even I realized reading through the module ahead of time. There's been a lot of acid, a lot of acid, a lot Um, of goops. Yeah. And a lot of goops, but we're having a grand old time. Hopefully we're about two thirds of the way done recording at the time that we're recording this episode. I hope we only have one more session and then we'll wrap it up. But I'm really looking forward to getting that out to you guys. Hopefully, I am describing the setting enough. I know that sometimes whenever I have a map in front of me that my players can see, I don't describe (laughs) the setting as much. And so it's going to make a lot of people unhappy listening to the actual play whenever I'm just (laughs) referencing the map. Well, if you need to, you can post a photo of the map, perhaps just the image of the map to the episode. I I know I listen to a lot of historical podcasts where they do something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway, here I am rambling on. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. If you have any comments, suggestions or ideas, or if you have questions to submit for the episode 100 live stream on Friday, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch and YouTube. Just search under common taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. I have not gotten the Tundra Behemoth done yet because I've been doing prep for the actual play. I'm hoping that once we get into <laughs> September, I will have time to get that finished and put up. Finally, we are on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in the show notes, and we would love to have you come over and chat with us. You can find our podcasts wherever you find your regular podcasts. If this is your first time, thank you for finding us again. As always, please subscribe and give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and it lets us know more of the type of content you want to hear. So stay safe, everyone, and we will see you on Friday in Twitch in the live stream for episode 100. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.